You're listening to Rosie on the House. Come on around back, Arizona. It is 8 o'clock. It's the fourth Saturday of the month, which means we're urban farming with farmer Greg Peterson of the Urban Farm. If you'd like to join the conversation, one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you. Jennifer, standing by to screen your calls. You can text questions to 411-923, or you can email info at rosieonthehouse.com. Woohoo in three, two, one. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> nice. Good morning, everybody. What are we working on today on the farm? Oh, my gosh. Well, what are we talking about today, or what am I working out on at the farm? Because we're getting our fall beds prepped That's right. for our fall crops, and we'll be planting those in about 30 days. Which is, uh, what will you be putting in? Well, what seeds are you going to be? What seeds am I going to be planting? So the fall crops, the cool crops, are all your brassicas, uh, cauliflower, broccoli, cabbage, kale, that kind of stuff. Snow peas go in this t- in, in about a month. Uh, um, arugula, so the hardier greens can go in now. Well, when I say now, I mean in a month. Uh, and then the lettuces and the, the f- more fragile greens need to go in and interestingly enough, in November. But I'm getting all the beds prepped and pl- for planting. And for the tours that we come up co- got coming up this, uh, this fall, we've got uh, the first Friday and Saturday of October and the first Friday and Saturday of November, we got tours when you can come and see the urban farm. So it has to look pretty for people then. <laughs> God, it's all in the presentation. <laughs> there you go. And when people come to see the urban farm, they can see a visual of what you have on our agenda today is, is exactly. what a food forest on your property looks like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, creating a food forest is really thinking like nature. You know, we have to stand back and look to see how nature would do things. And, you know, it's a little bit different. It's actually a lot different <laughs> here in the desert. Uh, I had a buddy of mine. I met uh, Raymond uh, Raymond and Karen in 1991 in a course that we did way back then. And they tried to garden here in Phoenix and tried to garden and you know, they weren't trying very hard, but they were just casual gardeners. And about eight years ago, they moved to Seattle and Raymond called me one day and he said, oh my gosh, Greg, all I did was throw seeds out back <laughs> and I got zucchinis growing. Can't quite do that here. You have to do a little bit more planning. And so that's what I, that's, that's really what we're talking about today is what does a food forest look like and, and how do we plan for it? So it starts by stepping back and observing nature. Exactly. What are we observing? Because, like you said, it's not like zucchinis just grow on the dirt, <laughs> desert floor. <laughs> not here, that's for How sure. does nature grow a zucchini? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, uh, you know, the, what we stand back and observe for is where the sun's coming from. Because when we're dealing with the sun, especially here in the desert, we have two major things that the plants uh, need and are impacted by. The first thing is sunlight. Plants need sunlight. And when you have a plant that is producing something that is fruit-like, you know, whether it's a vegetable, fruit or vegetable, like whether it's a vegetable like a zucchini or a peach, you know, a, a fruit like a peach, they need more sunlight because they're taking that sunlight and they're converting it into chlorophyll and making the plant grow and nurturing the fruit or vegetable coming off of the plant. The downside to being here is that the heat. So you need your you need a lot of sun, but you have to minimize the heat. So we have to stand back and look in your space to see how you can maximize the light and minimize the heat. And we do the heat minimization by planting um, 
basically nurse plants. And, you know, if you turn around and look right here, these are Palo Verdes right outside the window here. Big ones. Big ones, exactly. And the cool thing about desert trees, Palo Verdes and mesquites, is they they give us a dappled shade. Sun, some sunlight gets through. Unlike like an ash tree that is a dense shade or mulberry trees, which gives us dense shade and it's really hard to grow something underneath them. So starting to pay attention to what that top level of uh, shade is for your space. Plus, you want to shade your house on the west side anyways. You know, the west side of your house gets sun from noon until sundown, and it's it's the harshest place to grow. So, And sometimes, just depending on your lot orientation, it might be the only place you have room available to grow. Exactly. So we've got to start by cooling that area. Right. And the sooner you get trees planted the better off you're going to be, whether it's for shading your house or shading your garden, shading the space outside. I was in a, be- a buddy of mine's backyard uh, two days ago. And, uh, you know, it's in a neighborhood that's a desert neighborhood. But he in the front yard, he had two monster desert trees. I think they were sumacs. And he had two monster mesquite trees in his backyard. And it just you know, you drive into the neighborhood and it's a hot desert neighborhood and you walk into his front yard and walk into his backyard and it's 10 degrees cooler. And the soil underneath the trees is starting to, you know, become real soil rather than our desert dirt because of the leaves dropping and like that. So uh, that kind of shade will help you immensely in creating, you know, the first, the upper level of your food forest. I like that word, food forest, because mm-hmm. it really drives it home. You can say gardening, you can say orchard, but I mean, a food forest just wraps it all up nicely together. Exactly. And really what we're doing in creating a food forest is we're observing to see what's going on in our neighborhood and in the desert here, and then we're starting to replicate that. And then one of my cardinal rules for growing things is never plant something you can't eat. You know, why or or that doesn't support it. So, you know, I'll plant mesquite trees in my yard, but they give us beans that we can eat. They also give us mulch. I also have an ash tree, a monster ash tree in the back in my backyard. And although you can't eat it, it gives me bushels and bushels of mulch every year that goes into the compost bin that helps me create healthy soil. So the systems you want to start thinking about in your food forest is how do these system, the systems that I'm putting in support building soil, support providing shade, support, you know, just having food everywhere that you can eat. Because there's always something to eat in the yard at the urban farm. Always something. And it's becoming more and more critical, as you uh, we've mentioned on past broadcast, your mm-hmm. vision is to create Phoenix into a place that grows enough food to feed Phoenix. Because in this country, have you heard about the uh, standard American diet? No. The acronym is, did you get it? Standard. Sad. Sad. (laughs) And it's driving people to uh, obesity and to diabetes and to heart failure. Uh, Our standard American diet in this country is driving us into ill health. 
And so a lot of the people that I interact with are the baby boomers that are starting to bump up against health issues. That's me. I'm 58 years old. I eat really well. And I'm still starting to bump up against things that are saying to me, whoa, hold on here, Greg. <laughs> what are you putting in your mouth? So, I really, you know, you really have to start paying attention to that. And one of the easiest things you can do is put in a small garden in your backyard. Whether it's, you know, a tower garden, I have one of those, which is a really cool hydroponic growing system, or, you know, a small 5 by 10 raised bed in your backyard um, and, you know, providing shade over the top of it. And then the intermediary um, stage of, the, of your uh, food forest, you got your tall trees to provide you shade. Underneath them, you put your fruit trees in. And that's creating your microclimates. Exactly. And you want to define microclimates, given you brought up the word? <laughs> no, I'm just going off your talking points. <laughs> <laughs> Micro, there you go. Microclimates are spaces in your yard that are warmer or cooler. And what we're really trying to do is, is um, take advantage of those spaces in our yards that are warmer or cooler, depending on what, um, you know, what time of year we're, we're gardening and what we're growing. You know, a Western exposure gets sun from noon until sundown. Probably going to be the hardest place to garden in your yard, unless you want to grow tomatoes in December. And I, I did a project at the Calico Cow. You remember the Calico Cow Eatery over on Central about 15 years ago? They had a Western-facing back patio. And it was largely concrete, but the garden bed was six feet wide and 40 feet long. It was insanely hot in April, May, June, July, and August, and September for six months of the year. But the other six months, we could grow everything, including tomatoes, which normally we grow tomatoes here in February, March, April, and May and get a really good harvest. We were growing tomatoes in that hot microclimate all winter long. And by Christmas, she was harvesting big baskets of tomatoes to serve in a restaurant. So taking advantage of those microclimates, those spaces that are warmer or cooler or get more wind, it will help you distinguish uh, how to grow more food. And it's nothing that you're going to get right every time. There, there's a lot of farming and gardening that, you know, there, there's a big percent of failure you just have to yep. be comfortable going with. And you could be doing everything right and it, could just have a weak plant. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I tell people growing food in the desert is one great big grand experiment. I can share with you what I do and work, what works best for me. It may very well work for you, but you're going to have to go experiment. And I promise you, I've killed more trees and plants than you have. <laughs> Not on purpose, but that's how we learn. So when you kill something, don't do that again. You know, take note, observe, pay attention to what's going on and don't, you know, don't replicate it again. And when we're looking at all of the elements, when we're observing nature and we're going through our sun and we've got microclimates and then there's watering and soil, the outside force, you've got uh, pests and good things. I'm, I'm curious about what those good, good things, things are. are. Pests are pretty self-explanatory and sometimes those are neighbors. <laughs> uh, neighbors, neighbors, kids, dogs. Neighbors, dogs, neighbors, cats coming in and scratching uh, in your plants you and gardening. There you go. <laughs> Well, um, you know, one of the one of the bonuses, not so much this year, but because we've only had just a little over three inches of rain. In fact, this monsoon season is on schedule to be the driest monsoon seen, season ever. But one of the positives at my place is I've designed rainwater harvesting systems so that when the rain does come, the water goes where I want it to. So when I'm planting 
the water in the ground. I'm purposely designing my rainwater harvesting systems to put the water in the spaces of my yard where I want it. So then I planted the water and then I plant around where I plant the water. So I'm actually growing things around where I put the water. So that's, you know, that's one of the positives. And we got to get ourselves home We were joking during the commercial break about all the variety of things that natives, native to the desert, that oh, people yes. can eat. And you were quoting numbers of up to, to 200? 2,000 different things to eat in the desert, yes. One of the, mo- you know, the most obvious things, especially this time of year, are prickly pears. So given you brought, a, brought up the desert edibles, prickly pears are wonderful to harvest this time of year. They're, they're ripe right now. Uh, you want to look for a prickly pear bush that has a lot of, uh, you know, what size, the golf ball size prickly pears on it. There is one huge caveat, though. You never, never, never want to touch a raw prickly <laughs> pear. They have little thorns on them called glockids, and they are nasty thorns. So if you're going to harvest some prickly pears, it's actually quite simple. Wear gloves. Use a pair of tongs. Metal tongs is what I use. I take the prickly pears home. I rinse them off, and I put them in a gallon jar uh, after I rinse them. So I rinse them off, and I put them in the gallon jar, and I kind of I use a potato masher, and I as I'm putting them in the gallon jar, I smush them. So it's kind of crushing the fruit a little bit. And I fill up the gallon jar about three quarters, and then I stick it in the freezer. And what that does is the smashing them starts the breaking down process. But when you freeze them, all the cells in the prickly pear burst so that when you unfreeze it, your juice just runs right out. So how do you get rid of all those little tiny uh, thorns? What do you call Glockids. them? Glockids. Well, the cool thing is, is that in freezing them, the freezing process gets rid of 99% of them. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's really quite fascinating. Some people burn them off. Um, I was talking to Peggy Sorensen recently. She was on the show a couple of months ago. Uh, I was talking to Peggy Sorensen recently, and she takes them and just rolls them in the sand. That seems like a lot of work to me. Um, but uh, prickly- I do I do love your solutions. Always minimize the work. <laughs> so well, you know, I am a lazy farmer, a lazy gardener. I'm always looking for the simple, easy uh, way to get that done. And if you don't know the difference between a prickly pear and a choya, you shouldn't be out at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, make sure that you Google prickly pears so you know exactly what you're looking for. Because, uh, yeah, choyas are um, – I still have this memory from when I was a kid. When we first arrived here, it was the early 70s. We were out in the desert, and my mom bumped up against mm. a choya and trying to get the – Oh. Yeah, trying to get the choya buds off of her was just – impossible horses and dogs don't like it either oh yeah there <laughs> that's you pretty go. tough always carry a comb you can just whack them off hey quick question about the prickly pear the very first time we did it i read instructions that said you had to burn them all off and everything and one of the first times i did it i had my son-in-law stand in the kitchen for hours burning the stuff off oh yeah and no. then we realized you really can just throw them in the blender we 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 throw them in the blender and then we drain them through like a a pillowcase into yep. a bucket. Yep. Um, but do you take the time to take off even the big stickers or just well, the, nice, the big ones? Yeah. The nice thing on, on the fruit itself, generally there aren't any big stickers. You know, the big thorns. Yeah. Every once in a while you find them. But yeah. 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 I, in that case, I would take them off. But 
Well, I'll get us back on track here. <laughs> oh my gosh! Because uh, <laughs> sorry, it's a passion. A couple things. Uh, there are plenty of places that you can go. Like the you'd mentioned the Desert Botanical Gardens. Yep. Um, I know. I don't remember which state park, but it's an Oracle. You can find it on State Parks website. At they have a prickly pear plucking. Uh, event this weekend and i think next weekend as well so you can go there and they've got a plethora of prickly pear cactus that you can go pick from and there's all kinds of classes available out there for desert edibles but the point we were making hold on before we go past that i just um typed in prickly pear festival apparently at uh, the phoenix downtown market uh, right downtown phoenix next saturday from one to five they're doing some kind of prickly pear festival at the market. Nice. Yeah. Oh, and then Superior. Superior is what you were, where they have the prickly pear festival at this weekend, I think. It's not Tom- Thompson, Boyce. Uh, Boyce, Boyce Thompson. Boyce Thompson. Thank you. Yeah. But check it out online. <laughs> Just type in prickly pear, you'll find it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so prickly pear being the exception. Because it, it is very good. Uh-huh. And every time I've made prickly pear jelly, it's come more, more like prickly pear syrup, but it's still good. Exactly. If all 2,000 varieties of edibles in the desert were good, we'd be harvesting more of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Good. You, you can live off of it, but living off of it and good don't always yeah. matter. <laughs> well, good and then easy to get to. E- easy you to know, get to, easy to harvest. Because choya buds are edible. But, you know, the choya buds are essentially the, the jumping cactus that you don't want to mess with. So, <laughs> anyways. There's plenty of challenges that come with harvesting locally, and there's plenty of resources that uh, you can go help learn. And yeah. we're talking about creating a food forest in your home, in your yard, so for your wh- family. Yeah, one of the big things you have to remember when you're creating your food forest is your yard isn't separate from the rest of the world. So you're going to get birds in, you're going to get bugs in, you know, there's all this interaction that's going to happen. In fact, in the past five years at the urban farm at 16th street and Bethany home area, we've had bobcats in our backyard. We've had, um, raccoons in our backyard. Uh, we've had foxes and coyotes on our street and javelina in our street right in the middle of Phoenix. So you have to make sure that you know that it's all part of a natural system and it's interacting that way. We'll continue talking about creating a food forest in your yard if you have a question or like to join the conversation. one 767 4348 one rosie for you Text can be 411-923 or you can email info at rosieonthehouse.com. I will put together a bunch of in our, our social media post at the end. We'll put some of those Prickly Pear Festival links. That's something else we don't talk about enough. To be a successful gardener, you have to be able to say it over like a seven-second stretch in four syllables. Garden! <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. And you always tease me with that great music. It's like, oh, I want to continue listening. I'll pull it up on my iTunes when I leave here. I'll add some wavy gravy to that later. All right, cool. Uh... we got to stay on task, man. You keep pulling me off talking about prickly pears and... Polar permaculture. Yeah. <laughs> so the the second thing, the second big. So we talked about microclimates and sun, 
Um, we can touch on water a little bit. We all know that's important. But really, the the most important thing for the success of growing food, besides placing your garden correctly, is growing healthy soil. And we've talked about this on the show. Uh, and I talk about it in Ignosium whenever somebody gives me a chance. And there are five components of healthy soil. Do you remember this? I remember there's five. I can't name them all, but okay, good. I do know that as a gardener, as a farmer, you're really a soil specialist. Oh, it, and exactly. And then the plant takes care of itself. Right. You're just creating the growing condition, provide the water, and let the plant do the rest and exactly. kill the bugs. <laughs> yeah. And so we have, what we have here in the desert is dirt. And Amy Rocky, she's from Tanks Green Stuff down in Tucson. Um, she told me recently that we have less than 2% organic matter in our soil. So what we have is highly compacted, and I'm giving you hints along the way on what those five components are. Okay. So we have highly compacted dirt that doesn't allow the water to get in, and um, it just basically doesn't let things grow. So dirt and water are two. Uh, dirt, exactly. Dirt is the broken down rock. The cool thing, and you really need dirt. Dirt you need to have it. It's got the micronutrients in it, but when that's all you have, they're locked up and the plants can't get it out. So dirt, water, this is, remember, not to make healthy plants, although eventually that's what it does. This is healthy soil. Dirt, water, airspace. So remember I said highly compacted? So highly compacted soil doesn't grow stuff. Uh, creosote. It grows creosote. <laughs> maybe a little bit, exactly. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's some of the desert trees that are really good diggers, and mallow is a weed that'll dig amazingly. So, dirt, airspace, water, organic matter. Remember I said uh, uh, Emily told us that there were less than 2% organic matter in the desert soil, and everything that's alive in the soil. So, the five components of healthy soil are dirt, airspace, water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. The really good news is... It's easy to fix. All you do is you add organic matter and you add lots and lots and lots of organic matter. So when you're going to be planting a garden, often what I will do is I'll go in and I'll add four or six or eight inches of compost on top of my garden beds and then just plant. Did you notice that I didn't say dig? I did. Yeah. So I just, pl I just put that organic matter right on top. And then plant right in it, and I let the roots do the work. Um, I had something really fun happen about uh, eight, ten years ago. A friend of mine, Steve, called me and said, and I've known Steve for 30 years. He said, my wife Jan would like a garden in our backyard. Uh, can you help us get it installed? And I don't install gardens anymore, but I, I said, okay, send me a picture. And when I got the picture, I was doing a happy dance. So the garden bed was on the east side of the house. Remember we talked about the cooler space Warmer space, cooler space. So on an east exposure, it gets sun from sun up until noon. The best place to put your garden, by the way, is so that it's getting shade in the afternoon. So this was an eastern exposure garden. It was four feet wide and 14 feet long. It already had a brick pavers around it. There was no Bermuda or nutgrass growing in it. So all I had to do was add six inches of organic matter. We planted, I was there for 47 minutes the morning we planted their garden. While I was hauling the dirt in, the soil in, Jan was watering, 
And then we planted seeds and I left. And she's still, I was just over there recently. This was probably eight years ago that I put the garden in. I was just over there recently. And um, she's graduated to rose bushes in that space, but it's, that space is still growing really cool things for them. So you mentioned six inches of compost. Is mm-hmm. When you're at a your local nursery and you're looking at it, you've got compost mm. and then potting soil. Yes. What's what's the or, or, or gardening soil? What's the difference between composting and, and planting soil? So this is something really important to know. Great question. Thank you. And I didn't even prompt you. Um, when potting mix, potting soil, compost – Um, usually the potting mix and potting soil has compost in it, but then they put other things in it. There might be a little bit of little teeny bit of woody mulch in there to help, uh, create airspace. It, um, probably has some perlite in it. It may have, uh, some other composted things in it. The planting mix, my farmer, Greg's planting mix that we sell and that uh, tanks makes for us and that we sell at the urban farm nursery. And then it, um, buries true value hardware and, uh, Dig It Nursery, uh, Sun, uh, a couple other places in town sells it. But what's in there is 40% compost, 40% pine, composted pine bark, which is a really nice additive, and then uh, some worm castings, which is a, uh, you know, a really nice fertilizer for your garden, and uh, perlite. So that's what they put in, in the Farmer Greg's mixture that we use. Um, that's compared to woody mulch or mulch. So for me, when you grab a handful of whatever you're going to plant in, if you can identify more than five or 10% of what's there, that's, you know, it sticks in woody mulch, that's mulch. It's not compost. And you never, never, never want to use mulch in your garden. You want to use it around your trees. We, we uh, encourage people around their fruit trees to put in six inches of woody mulch in a six-foot uh, six diameter basin around your tree to start building the soil around the trees. But that's on top of the soil. You always want to add compost or potting mix in your soil or on where you're going to be growing groceries. The, basically, the reason is, is that when that woody mulch breaks down, it swipes the nitrogen from the, from the growing environment and your plants don't have any nitrogen to grow on. Interesting. I, I never knew that's why. I, I knew you weren't supposed to, but that's yeah, why. Because That's, it takes that's exactly why. Yeah, exactly. The other thing is when you're buying garden soil, if you – I would I'll always ask them. First of all, you can get it bagged from us. Um, I always ask them if they put dirt in it. Here's the thing. Dirt and sand is heavy. I promise you, you have plenty of dirt and sand in your soil. You don't need to be buying dirt and sand in your planting mix and hauling it to your house. Because what's going to happen is you'll put down like a Jan's house. We put it down six inches of of the planting mix right on top of her garden space. There's plenty of dirt six inches down. And what happens fairly quickly is the roots of the plants, they'll start digging into that dirt and integrating it and... Um, you know, making the whole bed really happy and healthy. I have a garden bed in my front yard that we're getting ready to plant basil in this fall. We're going to plant out 450 basil plants in my front yard. Lots of pesto, baby. And I had to dig down into it recently. And I went down almost two feet before I got to dirt. And I've been growing that garden bed for 20 years at the urban farm. 
So just by adding organic matter on top and letting the plants grow and letting the plants do the work for you, over time, your garden soil bed, your garden bed soil is going to grow nicely. Two feet. Two feet. It was so, amazing. It was absolutely amazing. A garden is one of those things, you know, you could go to somebody's house, oh, you might like this feature, oh, you might like that feature, or this or that. But a garden is one thing that, you know, when you see it, you think, oh, man, I wish I had that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know anyone that's ever looked at a garden and didn't think, ah, I could see that in my backyard. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, ah, exactly. I need to do that. <laughs> well, you know, they really, putting a garden in, it, it takes a little bit of work up front. You have to do some thought work. In fact, I give a I give a class called Three uh, Jumpstart Your Fall Garden, and I outline basically what we're talking about here today is where are you going to put your garden, how are you going to create healthy soil, how are you going to water it? That's really important, uh, and then what kind of seeds to grow in to grow in your garden. And once you kind of decipher all of that before you ever do anything in your garden, um, that's going to set you on the right track. And water's a big issue, and I, my thought process is, is how much water does it take to ship all this stuff in? Exactly. I get, you know, from especially some from some from of our friends in Tucson, I get a lot of blowback because, Greg, what are you doing planting fruit trees in the desert? Well, there's 4.4 million people that live in the valley that have to eat. And hauling that food in for them is environmentally expensive. So why don't we just grow it here, especially if we're growing it in our yards? And in fact, one of the, I have this vision that I created about 20 years ago. I, between now and when I die, I want to create Phoenix into a food secure place, which means we're growing all of our own food here. I know that's maybe pie in the sky, but it gets me up every morning. But what I'm seeing, and I started this conversation about 20 years ago and about 15 years ago, I started, what if there were 10,000 urban farms in Phoenix? And just this year, We've kind of crested over the top, and I'm starting to watch people that have been getting fruit trees from me for the past five or ten years and show off the amazing amount of fruit they're getting. In fact, uh, Dr. Jolene Cootie, she's a chiropractor here in town, is one of the speakers at our fruit tree event in two weeks, two weeks from today, and she's going to come in and share about the amazing amount of fruit that she got off of her fruit trees this year. In fact, she told me in a in a a podcast interview the other day, they got 2,800 apricots off of one tree <laughs> this year, off of one tree. And so, you know, she kept posting on Facebook about all of her apricots and peaches and apples and mulberries and all the things and pictures of them. And it was just, there were these huge tables of fruit and they, you know, she's got four kids. And so they were processing the fruit and freezing it and making food out of it and jam and all kinds of stuff. And that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about is what if we lived in a place where there was just food growing everywhere? Does it sound like I'm preaching now? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's why we bring you in once a month to keep keep everyone inspired yeah. you know, and, and remind them how to do it and that it is easy. And, you know, if somebody listening to this now three years ago, if, imagine what they're – if they had taken advice right then – yeah. What that time. So the next best time to start is now. Get get it started. We're going into the fall. We're going into the planting season. It's a great time to get started on on that. And we haven't had a garden in the last couple of years, but my orchard is now oh, eight nice. years old. Yep. And it, it's really starting to, to come into its own. And my pecans are still a little, I said eight, that can't be right. I plan on Remy's six. Yeah, it's They're but, six years old. So, yeah. uh, I remember the 
pecan trees going in. Yeah. And it, it, we're just we're getting so close, but they're already providing a ton of shade. And mm-hmm. the leaf drop, we don't pick anything up. We use uh, yeah. the. That's the other thing. You just said it. You don't pick anything up underneath it. Don't rake up your leaves. If you want to rake your leaves off your lawn, put them in your garden beds. That's our soil coming into the future. We have to have to have that. In fact, I've got four of my neighbors trained. In the fall, they bring me their leaves. <laughs> well, so, you know, work with your neighbors and train them as well. <laughs> Nothing beats a fruit tree. There you go. Hey, I got a question for you. You know, with the recent heat that we've had, the oh, excessive yeah. heat, my uh, ficus tree has crispy leaves, crispy oh, yeah. tips. Yeah. How well, about yours? Yeah, well, I don't have a ficus tree, but apples, uh, peaches, uh, a lot of fruit trees, a lot of the trees, a lot of the non-desert trees will get the crispies on the end. Um, it's the extreme heat, number one. The other thing, especially here in the low desert, is the water is quite salty here in the low desert. That's right. And yeah. what happens is, is we water, especially if you're on drip irrigation, you put some water on there and the water evaporates, leaves the salts behind. And you do that over and over and over again. What happens is, is that the plant takes those salts up and when they, when, when it, uh, when the water moves up to the ends of the leaves, the water evaporates, leaving the salts behind and um, making the tips crispy. So what you want to do then uh, periodically, you know, two, three times a year is you want to really flood the basin around the tree, stick the hose in it, run the hose in it for three or four hours. So you really do a flush of a lot of those minerals. But this time of year, crispy leaves, especially at the tip ends is it's kind of normal. You know how I'm watering the tree occasionally? How? Uh, Water from the air conditioning unit. Oh, yes. Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, nice. it, it's gotten three tankfuls under the tree. And nice. Like I say, the crispy leaves, I understand. but Yeah, because that, that water is distilled water. Right. You know, mm-hmm. there's no minerals in, or virtually no minerals in it. One of the farmers that Julie Murphy brought in, we bring in the Farm Bureau the first Saturday of the month. Uh-huh. And in January, we had Desert Premium Farms from Yuma. Right. And he had some statistics. He said 40%. And it's a little different because they're getting it straight out of the Colorado versus over here where it's come across the CAP or it's coming down the SRP and yep. it's treated by the city. So it's it's a little bit different. But they said in Yuma, 40% of their water is just to leach out minerals. Wow. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. Well, and, you know, the CAP water has traveled all the way across the state and evaporated. So it's highly mineralized as well. And it's just, you know, it's nobody's fault. There's nothing wrong here. It's just we live in the desert. Water evaporates, leaves the minerals behind. And just knowing that and yeah. then what to do, which is what you said, give it a good flush ever, every, every so often. Yep, a couple, three times a year for sure. That'll help, Gary. And when it's triple digits, you know, stuff is just going to not look the same as it is when it's 70 <laughs> degrees, right. just like you and me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we I look took... a lot different standing out there in triple digits than we do standing out there when yep. it's 72. <laughs> yeah, well, and I took Kismet, my dog, to the dog park this morning and um, you know, she was wiped out within about 10, 12 minutes. Cause it's just, it's this morning, it's out there, it's humid. It's just miserable. And, you know, welcome to the desert in August. That's so, it. Fruit trees only because I have a, a major event coming up in two, yes. two weeks from today that I want to invite everybody to. 
So I run a fruit tree education program here in the valley. This is ready for this. Drum roll, please, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) This is my 20th year educating people about fruit trees. And I educate, there's two main reasons uh, that I, well, what really one main reason that I educate people about fruit trees is because you can go into most nurseries and every single big box store and they will sell you a fruit tree that will never make fruit. And that just frosts me. That is just wrong. It's bogus. And so what I've done is I've put together a series of classes that I'll get, give over the next two months on successful growing your successfully growing fruit trees in the desert. Um, and, uh, it starts two weeks from today at uh, North Phoenix Baptist Church. We rent their fellowship hall. So this is an indoor event. starts at 9 o'clock in the morning. And um, it's a four-hour fruit tree education event. We've got, given it's my 20th year doing this, uh, we've got over $2,000 worth of stuff we're giving away. Uh, and, um, and I've got, uh, Tom Spellman that's coming in from Dave Wilson nursery. This guy knows more about fruit trees than anybody I've ever met. If it's the same guy I'm thinking, he was at the shade conference a year or two ago from Dave Wilson. Yeah, exactly. He's very highly, uh, knowledgeable and respected, respected. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And he's a great guy. And so he's, he's, uh, driving in. Uh, and he's our main speaker. I'm going to have Emily Rocky come in and talk about creating healthy soil. Uh, Dr. Jolene Cootie, who I mentioned earlier, she's one of our uh, keynote speakers that's going to talk about the amazing abundance that she's getting out of her yard. And, uh, you know, just after five years of growing fruit trees. So the event is free and you go to fruittrees.org. That's my website these days, fruittrees.org. And you can sign up there. Um, and I'd love to see you. And then in a couple of weeks after that, the Great American oh, Seed Up. So yeah. you'd mentioned you're getting your soil ready. Yeah. And then in six weeks, we'll start planting and you guys, all heirloom seeds. Uh, yes. Open pollinated and heirloom seeds. The Great American Seed Up, this is our fifth year doing it and our sixth time doing it. So the first year we did it twice. Basically, we rent that same 10,000 square foot fellowship hall at North Phoenix Baptist Church. And we put out 100 different varieties of seeds in buckets. And so what it looks like is this sea of tables with seeds on them in a popcorn bucket. And you walk up to the popcorn bucket. Let's say it's Armenian cucumbers. And there's a scoop next to it with a Ziploc bag and a business card that tells you what to, how to propagate that Armenian cucumber. So you grab the scoop. You put a scoop in. You put a business card in. You zip it up and you mark it one scoop on your tally sheet. So it's a, you know, it's a bulk buy essentially. And um, that scoop is a dollar and a quarter. And it basically what we've des- done with the Great American Seed Up is we've designed the scoop size to be about 10 packets, 10 normal packets of seeds. So you're getting an amazing amount of seeds. So greatamericanseedup.org is where you can find information about that. Fruittrees.org is my website. The fruit trees in two weeks. The seed up is in six weeks. Six weeks, yeah. Thanks for having me. I love you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Urbanfarm.org as well for Greg Peterson, and uh, the the tours are coming up as well. Uh, First Friday and Saturday of October.